0: presentation of the Yoga Sutras with a few good minutes of meditation at the level of Ajna Chakra. And tonight I am continuing with the presentation of the Sutras on Yoga by Patanjali, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is a very famous, a very fundamental, and at the same time a very severe, a very serious text of the Yoga tradition. I'm trying to give also a Tantric yoga interpretation, a presentation from the standpoint of the energies and chakras involved in the process. And uh, in the first presentation that we did a few days ago, we had been stopping in the middle of the comments to the fourth of the sutras. Uh, I remind the subject matter because there is a very beautiful logics in the yoga sutra. The first of the sutras told us that now it's going to make a presentation of yoga. The second of the sutras briefly defined yoga as the stopping of the vrittis, as the stopping of the worlds of the mind, of the movements of the mind. The third sutra said when such condition is attained, when the movements of the mind are arrested, then the soul, the spirit, the witness, the self is in its own nature. And the fourth of the sutra says, or else it identifies with the modifications of the mind. We said like in that comparison, or where a crystal is borrowing the color of a rose or something, which is beside it. And then you cannot see the self, the atman, the purusha, the seer, as it is called here. You can see only something which is superimposed on it. So, basically... As soon as the ripples of the water, as soon as the pond of water of the mind of cheetah is agitated, we cannot see properly. The gaze gets immediately attached to the ripples, to the superficial disturbance, and it is impossible to see through. It is impossible to see the real nature of things. And then nature takes the appearance of the mind. We are identifying with the mind, which is the most visible shell of things. And then, uh, I have mentioned also here in the end of this, that this is the root case of attachment. Attachment means that we are not attached to the self. We are attached to these ripples on the water, which creates appearances. And funny enough, the mind gets attached to these appearances. In an extreme way, we can say that the phenomena of nature or the input of the senses, a color, a sensation, or things like this, they are just ripples on the water, they are just appearances, exactly as suggested as in the Matrix, the movie. But at the same time, funny enough, we get attached to the objects, to the senses, and to uh, those ripples on the water. So we end with an attachment, that's where the root cause of attachment uh, is. It is basically a wrong identification. If allowed to stay quiet, the self identifies with the self, because Purusha is the self when nothing moves. As soon as something moves, the self is identifying with the mind, not with the self anymore, and then there results a wrong identification, and from wrong identification there results attachment and all that follows. However, this state, it is important to put it now in a tantric perspective, this does not uh, show that when there is movement of the mind, the self is actually absent, because the bottom of the lake is not absent, it is just very difficult to perceive, and therefore uh, it simply involves that the self-remembrance is not constant. Therefore here the problem is a problem of self-remembrance. When we have self-remembrance in the meaning of Gurdjieff, that all the time I should remember the self, who am I, where am I, what is all this, this actualization of reality, then automatically I am fulfilling the condition of yoga and as soon as the mind gets attracted to some of these ripples on the water, then automatically I'm losing the self-remembrance. So the whole thing is not that the self disappears, but that the self is simply not remembered. This is the major obstacle of life, that we forget, and sometimes we seem even to like to forget, and actually we are not supposed to forget, and here is the big, big thing, the big duel that we're having with the mind. The mind is a monkey, Conditioned by its own nature, the mind is trying to get things to digest, to process, and basically we want to tell it, stop. And the mind would do anything in its strength not to stop. Therefore, the mind is fighting against self-remembrance. Of course, there can be privileged conditions, such as when we are full of spiritual aspiration, when we actually make the mind fight against the mind, We actually have so much aspiration that we are asking to the mind to stop itself so that we can have self-remembrance, so that we can see the real self, the Purusha, the spiritual nature. In the opposite direction, because this sutra can be read in two ways, and this last interpretation is typically a tantric interpretation. On one hand, it said when the self, when the Purusha is quiet then it stays in its own nature and if it is not quiet it identifies with the modifications of the mind that also means and you have to think of this continuity that this shows this sutra shows that the origin of everything which exists or seems to exist if you prefer is actually in the self because if the self is now calm and it is itself and now it becomes engaged into the mind and it identifies with the ripples of the mind, with the patterns of the mind. It means basically that everything which exists is still coming from the Self. It is all just a modification of consciousness. It's a modification of Purusha. And therefore this is a very, very important conclusion which is uh, convergent with the conclusions of Kashmir Shaivism and generally the tantric tradition, that everything emerges from the Shiva consciousness, and therefore everything is, at a certain degree, a form of the self. Even the ripples of the mind, because the consciousness identifies to them, and okay, Purusha believes, I am this, or I am that, which are just ripples on the surface of the mind, nevertheless it means that it is the self which is involved, in any reality, in any creation, in everything that exists, and that is fundamental, because actually if you read it in this way, that automatically destroys the distinction between Purusha and Prakriti, in the meaning that it shows that reality is also related at a certain level to the Self, which is the opposite of what they believe in Vedanta and some other, in some primitive annunciations of Buddhism, which separates the nature from the spirit. Yoga Sutra actually presents the subject in such a way that both interpretations are possible. Now, the Sutra number 5, finally, starts an analysis which will go over seven different sutras, from 5 to 11 all in all, which are actually defining the movements of the mind. Patanjali, being so systematic, has said yoga means to arrest the movements of the mind. When that is happening, the self is in pure state. If the mind is moving, then the self is identifying with those movements of the mind. And now Patanjali simply defines the five types of movements of the mind. It simply says all those things which the mind does, and this is a very, very important thing, they actually would be qualified or categorized in five categories. They are roughly speaking five major activities of the mind. It is not a coincidence that they are five and you are going to see that that is uh, relevant later also from the standpoint of the chakras and others. So Patanjali now changes subject, goes one step lower and he simply defines those Activities, what does the mind do? This mind which colors the crystal of Purusha, this mind which hijacks the spirit and makes it identify to it, what does it roughly do? And he says the modifications, the sutra itself reads, the modifications of the mind are fivefold, they are painful or not painful, which means basically you can find five, and at the same time those five can be subdivided into as he calls them painful or and non-painful not painful that has a very particular understanding i am going to read a few ideas and then give further comments on this initial on this introductory introductory presentation this means that the modifications of the mind are 10 in all actually five of them are painful and five not painful This needs an illustration. The mind sees a flower, with the help of the eyes it assumes the shape of the flower, and it likes the flower. This is called then a pleasant perception. Then your mind sees a crushed, decomposed body of a dog over which the wheels of a vehicle have passed. Your mind looks through the eyes and assimilates the perception, but it does not like it. That is called klishta or painful. This is a simplistic interpretation, but I started with it simple. The modification is the same, the perception is through the eyes, but the vision is twofold, pleasant or unpleasant, painful or not painful. You are doing it through the eyes, but it is one of the manifestations of your mind. You listen to music or to lecture, that is also one of the modifications of the mind. Then you close your eyes and think of the past, present and future, about your relations, friends or enemies, That is one of the modifications of the mind, one of the formations of the mind, one of the patterns of the mind. When you are worried, anxious, or full of anger or passion, or full of grief, jealousy, compassion, love for men, love for God, that is also one of the patterns of your mind, and this particular modification is called a vritti. We already spoke largely about why they are called vrittis, worlds. In a play, the same man may come on the stage as a beggar, a king, a robber, a sannyasi, a man or a woman, and so on. In the same manner, it is a single stuff which is called awareness, consciousness, in a man which appears to be manifesting itself in the form of waking, dreaming, sleeping, thinking, liking or disliking. It is one consciousness which seems to be playing different roles, and those are different vrittis. So, in the beginning, it's quite clear that the mind manifests in five different actions that we are going to analyze one by one and these can be, as Patanjali puts it, painful or not painful. Actually, as you are going to see pretty soon, Patanjali interprets the painful or pleasant, this painful, not painful, from the standpoint of their spiritual consequences, not of their face value you know the big distinction which is given in spirituality between uh, pleasure, happiness and pain, unhappiness because there can be pleasure which produces unhappiness and there can be pain which produces happiness such as the wrong, the exaggerated pleasure of senses which leads us into excess and then pain uh, or disease and the thing where like we take a drug which smells in a very... or like a herbal medicine which tastes in a horrible way, but actually which is making us happy because it is giving us a state of energy, purity, health and all the rest. That is why when Patanjali says that the modifications of the mind are fivefold and we come to those five and those modifications of the mind are painful or not painful, he simply says these actions of the mind... They generate good karma or bad karma. They are the ones which produce positive effects in your evolution or negative effects in your evolution. Therefore, each of the five modifications can be painful or non-painful or pleasant if you prefer. The painful alternative always is the one which involves ego, like when you have those activities of the mind, plus ego, false identification, contraction of awareness, like smaller awareness, and the positive alternative always involves attitudes of the mind, which involve selflessness, pure love, expanded awareness, and so on. This is, therefore, the key, like the ones which contribute to the evolution, and the ones which prevent evolution. Whenever there is more contraction, ego, false identification, then we are dealing with a negative effect. We can therefore say very clearly, to make it clear, that the painful alternative modifications create karma, generally, while the positive ones help one free oneself from the domain of karma. This is uh, a larger, a bigger view of things. It's not that the positive ones create positive karma and the negative ones create negative karma. The, posi- the negative ones create karma of whichever kind, and the positive ones, they destroy karma, they are the ones that annihilate karma altogether. So, this is the meaning here. Of course, this takes us, if you are trying to make connections, you can make a lot of connections, because we are having five modifications, and you are going to see that it is not a coincidence. When you are going back in the sutras, you may remember that the state of mind was defined as there are five states of mind, and this is something which is quoted in your regular yoga courses as well, that the state of mind can be that of stupor, can be that of complete confusion, can be that of like agitation, can be that of dispersion, dispersed attention, can be that of focused attention, and finally can be that of arresting the movements of the mind, the famous five states of mind. There are five states of mind corresponding to them, there are also five activities of mind, modifications of the mind, and in the yoga tradition, those of you who are a bit more knowledgeable in the tantric ways, they know that five is not a coincidental number, is like the fingers of the hand, and therefore they are five, because there are five elements, there are five tattvas, the five first chakras constitute the five elements, the five senses, So actually, you are going to see there is a beautiful connection between these states of mind and the activity of the chakras and everything else. Moreover, if you double up these five, you have two hands with five fingers, all in all ten, which is our numeration system that we number in base ten numbers, not to mention five times two making ten, that is equivalent with the ten cosmic powers, and a lot of things which are there. Therefore, there is a profound implication in the fact that Patanjali finds out the modifications of the mind also in number of five, and then he doubles them up in terms of going down or going up in terms of evolution. Now, he simply, in the next sutra, has to mention, he says there are five modifications which are of a double nature, and the sutra number six is very brief, Because it simply tells us which are those five. And simply, their five names are used in Sanskrit. This sutra is made of five words, which are the names. Of course, when we translate in Western words, we don't just say the names of it. We just use some connection words, so the sentence becomes longer. The fivefold modifications of the mind that is not mentioned in the sutra actually are Right knowledge, wrong knowledge, fancy or imagination, sleep, and memory. Each one of them is going to be explained. So we are having the right knowledge, the false knowledge, the fancy or imagination, the sleep, whatever that means here, the word nidra is used in Sanskrit, like in yoga nidra, and finally, memory. Every mental state is included in these five modifications, Such as dreaming, waking, looking, talking, touching, beating, crying, feeling, emotion, action, sentiment. In fact, everything is included in these five. Because the mind, by having these five modifications, and the Purusha getting identified with the mind and thus creating reality, it means that everything which is created is originally having as source, these five original modifications of the mind. So here we are having the very levels of manifestation as described in the chakras. On the highest level Sahasrara you have the consciousness on the sixth level you have the mind and then on the next five levels you have the five modifications, the five elements the five tattvas with which the mind, assuming the form of it, describes the universe. This universe is described as being nothing else but a conglomerate of the five elements as being made Of the five elements and therefore everything which exists not only states of mind and emotions but everything which exists as a reality is nothing else but a derivative from these five modifications of the mind and if you prefer from the five chakras from the five elements from the five basic elements and therefore it means that the five modifications of the mind which are again right knowledge wrong knowledge imagination Sleep and memory are related to the five elements in a manner which is cryptical, and in which we are going to try to look. Now, the first of them is in the starting with the sutra number seven, in seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. The next five, Patanjali therefore has to explain each of these modifications of the mind. Remember that these modifications of the mind. Are all of them in a certain way enemies? Because the mind is, even if it's right knowledge, one of them sounds at least very good, right knowledge, and then perhaps memory is good, and any, each and every one of them is a vritti, is a modification of the mind. And because the mind modifies and it assumes that hue, then automatically the pure, colorless crystal, which is Purusha, the self, it borrows that color. Therefore, we need that the mind should stop having these five, for a while, even for a short interval, that the mind should stop having these five modifications, so that the spirit can be pure, calm, in its original form, uninfluenced. Therefore, if you do meditation, in meditation you don't want to have neither right perception, nor wrong perception, nor imagination, nor memory, nor sleep, you want to have the stopping of those five, so that the self alone can shine. Therefore, as good as they sound, and of course in Tantric Yoga, the meaning is expanded. Here you are going to see constantly the dialogue between the ascetic, dry forms of Yoga, Vedantic, which simply say, oh, all this is Maya, all these five modifications are Maya, therefore we want them wiped out, and the understanding of the Tantric tradition, which says, no, those are the five elements of the universe, which are sacred in a certain way, like the five Dhyani Buddhas of the Tibetan Buddhism, which are sacred, they represent sources of manifestation, but at the same time, they need to be surpassed. We need to be able to discriminate between the fact that this is a manifested aspect and this is the aspect of pure consciousness. Therefore, remember that when we talk about these five elements, about these five modifications of the mind, we talk about enemies for pure meditation, and at the same time we talk about the basic creative forces of the universe, which can as well be tapped they can be exploited they can be used in the case somebody decides to go into that direction and here are a few ideas if your senses the indriyas that is the perception are intact if none of them are defective then sense evidence is one of the sources of knowledge actually the direct The I'm sorry the the Right knowledge, as I have called it here, then in the next sutra is explicitated, it is analyzed. Therefore, the sutra number seven simply says the direct knowledge is made of the following things, but it actually says the sources of direct knowledge are direct perception, inference, and testimony or verbal cognition, which simply says. You can obtain an accurate knowledge di- directly to the perception of the senses in certain conditions. You can derive it through inference. Some things can be logically inferred. One plus one makes two. And then I know, and that's a perception, it's sure. And then through testimony, which means somebody can tell you about some things, and that can be a correct information, an accurate information, which gives, therefore, uh, right knowledge. And here is a little bit of analysis of them. First, it would be the direct perception. If your senses are intact, if none of them are defective, then sense evidence is one of the sources of knowledge. It should be remembered that this is not only a source of right knowledge, because sometimes our senses deceive us. For example, the mirage produced in a desert due to hot air. So sense perceptions must also not contradict each other. Therefore sense perception can also lead to wrong knowledge, and that is quite obvious. Many of the things which we perceive are a source of wrong knowledge as well. But among others, the sense, the direct perceptions of the senses can amount to a right knowledge. I am seeing this, I know that this is this, there is no contradiction things are very straightforward therefore I'm starting from an element of right knowledge of a direct perception. Is this problematic? Sure! This is problematic because I perceive something through direct perception and let's suppose I'm perceiving an object and this is disturbing my meditation. I'm looking at a tree and the image of that tree recurs I cannot get rid of that stupid tree inside my mind And therefore it spoils my meditation because the tree is interfering with my meditation. Therefore, again, I'm not saying that if it says right perception, right knowledge is automatically freedom. Right knowledge is uh, acceptedly it is uh, a a high form of knowledge. It is uh, one of the five elements in its positive form. It is something which is good but at the same time it means not yet freedom, it is an instrument actually towards freedom. It is very important to say this because of um, the fact that uh, ignorance versus knowledge has a very, very big influence in some spiritual traditions. I'm coming to that a little bit later because Patanjali is very clear and mentions that as well. The second source of right knowledge was inference. Like we have simply the logical deduction or other similar process. It becomes a, sou- a source of right knowledge only when it is based on sound reasoning. We see smoke on a distant mountain and immediately infer that there must be a fire on the mountain. So there must be, first of all, some sound reasoning and we need to have some solid data to start from. The third category of information which can give us right Knowledge is testimony. Actually the name which uh, Patanjali uses for testimony, for this testimony which comes from the past is actually Agama. Agama because Agama in the time of Patanjali also meant the traditional texts. It is today used mostly for the traditional tantric texts but generally Patanjali calls Agama the tradition, all the traditional information which came until then, is for him Agama. This testimony is useful in such circumstances where no sense evidence is available, as well as there are no sufficient grounds for inference. Here we have to depend simply on what others say, but there is one important condition. The other person, whose authority may be taken as a sufficient source of right knowledge, and who is called an apta, has to fulfill two conditions. First, such person should be able to impart the knowledge without any mistake. It is not enough that somebody has the knowledge, but sometimes the problem is exactly when transmitting it at the outer end, so to speak, when it comes out, and therefore in the last instant, in the last moment, the knowledge can be perverted, simply because it has not been transmitted correctly. Well, when such condition is fulfilled, then we can take Agama, the tradition which is of course expressed through human beings, as right knowledge. First of all, if you want to think like this, it comes from a person, because whoever wrote those texts down was ultimately a person. They didn't get written out in the blue air by the finger of God. If you take, let's say, a fundamental yogic text which is called Hatha Yoga Pradipika Hatha Yoga Pradipika is accepted today in Hatha Yoga as one of the fundamental sources and as a kind of solid authority. Nobody dares to contradict Hatha Yoga Pradipika in terms of practice of Hatha Yoga. But Hatha Yoga Pradipika is written by a fellow called Svatmarama, and therefore ultimately we know that the great yogi in the 16th century who was called Svatmarama, from wherever he got this information and whatever treatises he read or he picked up from before, he was a proper transmitter of knowledge. He was, he transmitted the knowledge well, without distortion, in such a way that what he gave to the world also became an agama. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika, in a certain way, technically speaking, is an agama. It is considered an agama, a kind of revealed text. Somebody can say, yeah, but it's done by Svatmarama. Right, Yoga Sutra is done by Patanjali. It doesn't matter who put it on paper. What it matters is that if it is in the spirit of the tradition, and if it communicates the information authoritatively and correctly. That is why uh, this is the testimony. The testimony ultimately involves a human being, not a piece of paper, because that piece of paper ultimately comes from a human being. Therefore, in yoga the authority is often called a guru and what he hands over to the disciple is something relying on faith in the beginning, but nevertheless it is right knowledge because the guru is, or should be, a person who knows correctly, who has been informed correctly, has verified, and knows correctly. The scriptures are also known as Agama, because they are the revelation of the Rishis, who have experienced at first hand the topics discussed therein. (coughs) Moreover, even the (coughs) the statements of the scriptures are not amenable to either sense, evidence, or inference. Some of the things which you learn in yoga are things which in the beginning you have to take for granted, right, on a basis of faith. Example, the yoga teacher comes and tells you that there are seven chakras in the human body. Well, before you came to yoga, the biggest probability is that you never heard about the seven centers of energy in the human body. Or whenever, whenever you heard about this story first time in your life. Therefore, in the beginning you say, yeah, really, are there seven chakras? And then the teacher is telling, yes, if you do like this, like this, like this, and like this, it will become possible for you to feel them, to perceive them, to energize them, to control them, to do this and to do that. Therefore, ultimately, in the beginning, there is an amount of faith. It's a testimony. Somebody tells us that there are seven chakras. And then there comes somebody else and says, no, there are eight chakras. Okay, one of them is wrong. One of them is not a correct testimony. One of them is an adulterated testimony while one of them corresponds to the tradition and it it transmits the correct knowledge. Therefore, these are the degrees, the direct sense perception which can give us a degree of correct perception, correct knowledge, correct inference, sound, logical inference and the agama, the testimony of tradition gurus and Whatever other source is there. Of course, the great yogis say that no impure human being can reach the spiritual truths, so witness comes from a person. This authorized witness comes from one who is fulfilling some conditions. Uh, Swami Shivananda says such a person should follow, should have the characteristics of one, being unselfish and spiritual. Two, being a person who can control their senses. Three, uh, this person must bring a knowledge which is not contradicting the past knowledge of humanity, which means the sound experience which was until there. And four, this person must bring a knowledge and at the same time must give a possibility of verification of that knowledge. Because if it comes absurdly like this, then there is no verification of that With the chakras, when you are told that there are seven chakras, anybody who insists in participating into a yoga course is given also the exercises and the modalities for becoming able to feel those seven chakras and start working with them. And therefore, it's verifiable. But if somebody is coming and saying, this is something which was given by some aliens from the Pleiades, then what's the possibility for you to verify that this thing is an energy which was sent by some alien civilization from the Pleiades? That can very often be just bollocks, ultimately. And therefore, uh, remember that there are some conditions, and that is why there exists also false testimony in spiritual ways, especially in the New Age, because many people transmitting this knowledge, they are not selfless, spiritual, spiritual, controlling their senses, uh, not contradicting the past knowledge of humanity, and at the same time giving the possibility of verification of those truths. And uh, therefore, this is the analysis of the right knowledge. This is how right knowledge can come. Even right knowledge, which is an elevating factor, and which is already on the nature of spirituality, uh, is at the same time still a vriti. It is a modification of the mind and even this right knowledge in Samadhi has to disappear because it still produces some ripples on the surface of the mind. It's true there are some beneficial ripples which until a certain point they help you in your evolution and they help you in your practice but then they have to be discarded as well. Other schools of thought accept a few other sources of right knowledge such as comparison, presumption, and non-existence, things which simply cannot be, and therefore you know that it has to be the other way. Uh, These are already splitting the hair. Originally, Patanjali mentions these three as sufficient, and actually he doesn't go further in the analysis of these. It is not the purpose of Patanjali to study some sort of basic psychology, how knowledge comes in, you will see, he stops here, he says there are five modifications of the mind, the first of them is the right knowledge, this right knowledge comes from direct perception, solid inference and the testimony of the authorized ones, and here the subject is ended. Patanjali does not want to go deeper into the analysis of this because Yoga Sutra is about something else, he already said enough and you can cover the rest if you want to study the psychology of perception, how do we perceive, and all the rest. It's outside of the interest of Patanjali in this text. Therefore, he is going in the next sutra to expand on the second. The second is the wrong knowledge, and the wrong knowledge obviously appears as uh, being a negative factor, At the same time, never forget what was said three shlokas, three sutras, they are not shlokas, they are sutras, three sutras ago. Three sutras ago, Patanjali said that each one of these is pleasant or unpainful or not painful, which means there is right knowledge which can be painful and right knowledge which can be not painful. There is Wrong knowledge which can be painful and wrong knowledge which can be not painful. And this is very interesting. Try to think about the fact that there are people, let's take right perception. There are people who call themselves scientists. Unfortunately, they have not yet reached to the level of the mind of an Albert Einstein or Werner Heisenberg or Erwin Schrödinger or Niels Bohr or such giants. And because of this, they practice a wiseacre science. They practice a half science. Such people uh, take a microscope and look at your DNA. They take a telescope and they look at the stars. And they say, from my perception, the results that there is no God. This is a right perception. It is a right knowledge. But it is actually having a painful end. Because these people, being blinded by the materialism of their perception, they do not manage to actually, the conclusion, what is done doing to their mind, it is painful. They look at the universe and they say there is no spirit. There is no God, there is no meaning, therefore this universe is a place of pain and randomity, is just a place where things happen randomly and accidentally, and therefore I find that life is absurd and useless, and I choose to shoot myself to the head. This is a right knowledge, because he has perceived right, the stars and the DNA structure, but it has been a right perception which gave rise to to a wrong conclusion, and to pain, to non-evolution, to destruction. So, therefore, remember that each one of them is able to produce good karma, or it is able to produce karma of any kind, or to liberate the human being. Albert Einstein, when looking at the universe and meditating of the uni- on the universe, he eventually found to say, that my ultimate conviction is that of the existence of a super or a supra rational power out of which our reason can catch only infinitesimal details and that power is my conception of God or the Absolute. Therefore, when Albert Einstein perceived with right knowledge the universe, he managed to extract from it the right conclusion which was given by the tantrics thousands of years ago. The universe is the body of God. This is the physical manifestation of the divine consciousness. Bohr and Einstein and Heisenberg and St. Georgi and countless other giants of science, they reached the same conclusion through the mere observation. So that was a right knowledge which at the same time gave not painful conclusions because it gave to them an impulse towards spiritualization. Therefore, this right knowledge can be good or bad, because it is the same right knowledge which enables somebody to create the fission of the atoms, and then to create weapons of mass destruction. And it's based on right knowledge, because if it would be wrong knowledge, then the scientific experiment of exploding uranium wouldn't work but if it works it is based on the right observation it is a right knowledge but it is a right knowledge which leads to something very bad ultimately so in this way remember that none of these is positive or negative the conclusions of it are positive or negative as it can be demonstrated for and the next one is of course wrong knowledge which seems to be wrong but remember even this wrong knowledge can actually have a positive or negative effect. Example, what wrong knowledge can actually have a positive effect? I don't know, let's take a simple example, a hypothetical example. Milarepa thought that his mother was dead, and then he simply went berserk, and he went to Guru Marpa to learn yoga and to forget everything about everything. And thus he got enlightened. Then later maybe he found out that actually his mother had not been dead. Therefore, this has been a wrong knowledge. But it has been a wrong knowledge which motivated him to do something right. Therefore, wrong knowledge is just a type of knowledge. It's not in itself positive or negative. Although, of course, in daily life we are tempted to identify it more like a factor of delusion, a negative factor. For example, and this is the classical example in Vedantism and in classical yoga, this particular uh, parable is when we mistake a rope for a snake our knowledge is incorrect because the thing which is actually existing before us is a rope which we take to be a snake. This is the classical inference when a rope can be mixed uh, up with a snake and therefore this was used in multiple ways in Vedanta and in classical yoga to show how the senses can give us a wrong perception and we can act wrongly on it. This false knowledge, first of all, the first thing, is it can be corrected by creating adequate conditions, such as enough light for correct knowledge to arise. So, first of all, some people can say, well, if we would like to stop wrong knowledge, we have to create the right conditions for right knowledge. This is, this wrong knowledge, is traditionally called avidya, or ignorance, and it is healed, or compensated, by what is called viveka, or discrimination. To mix up the rope for the snake is ignorance and to heal it is, to discriminate it is the discrimination Viveka. And therefore, this is actually a traditional concept because this wrong knowledge is considered more often than not as a source of human suffering because it leads to ignorance. Also, it is important to remember that this wrong knowledge, yes, including this, that we look at a rope and we see a snake. Who will see a snake when looking at a rope? Somebody who expects to see snakes all the time. Therefore, somebody who is generally obsessed, fearful, traumatic, having already a kind of dark obsession with snakes. Oh, in this place there are many snakes. You never know when you get over one. And then your mind, as soon as it sees the coils of rope, says, oh, a snake, my God, and actually it's like you are making it up while somebody who is very brave goes in and says, no, I saw from the beginning that it's a rope, I never think of snakes, you know. For me this does not exist, therefore the wrong perception, this wrong knowledge is created very much by our desires and fears, because the subconscious interferes and we form conclusions which are illusory. We see what we want to see. This is truly what illusion is. And if you remember, Jesus tells exactly the same. He says, I'm speaking to you, but not everything which I'm speaking to you stays inside you. It's the same like the proverb, which says the information enters through one ear and comes out through the other, like your head is empty inside, and you are not retaining anything, you are not paying attention. Therefore, the conclusion is very clear. Very often people see what they secretly wish to see, they hear what they secretly wish to hear. It happens all the time that I'm talking to people and we discover that they heard something else than what has been said, that they saw something else than what has been seen, and this is a result of mixture of a kind of a daydreaming condition, with where the subconscious interferes heavily with their perception and thus we are having the wrong perception. Therefore uh, what we need then is of course to let go of attachments because it is the attachments which produce this wrong perception through our desires and fear and therefore um, here the things are very, very important because uh, here in the commentary, it's not Patanjali himself, but the commentator, Vyasa, first of all, they dis- they describe the way this false perception appears. How is it possible? It's just enough that some acuity should be diminished, like the light goes a little bit low or something, and then suddenly you start improvising, you start fancying. It's a mixture of already of some imagination, wishful thinking, samskaras, subconscious mind, tendencies, desires and fears which appears there. Uh, The Sutra itself is using a very interesting formulation because it says, wrong knowledge is a false perception that is not established in its own form. I remind that in the Sutra number 3, they were using the opposite formulation. In the Sutra number 2, Patanjali said, Yoga is the stopping of the movements of the mind. And in the Sutra number 3 said, Then the self is established in its own nature. The seer, which means Purusha, is in pure state, and Purusha is uh, in its uh, original form. And here it it uses the same word, which is the word Tadarupa, that form, the original form with A, a A-Tadarupa, by saying a wrong knowledge is a false perception that is not established in its own form. The self is established in its own form, but in the case of wrong knowledge, this is not established in its own form, which means uh, in the Sutra number three, the fact that the self, the seer Purusha is established in its own form, it means the self, the Supreme Self is abiding in its own form, which is the reality living in the real, being the reality. Tatvamasi, you are that, that the reality. Therefore, this is actually a non-concordance with the reality because the perception of a reality is a step forward. If you remember in our study of yoga, the lack of correspondence between reality and perception is also something which is related to truthfulness. It is satyam or truthfulness which creates the correspondence between what is in and what is out as reality. If you speak the truth, that is why traditionally uh, cure to wrong knowledge is also truthfulness. Not only to let go of attachments, not only to control the desires and fears and all those things, but also to cultivate truthfulness because then automatically the wrong perception is possible to be diminished. These are all practical instruments for dealing with this second modification of the mind. The third modification of the mind out of the five is, of course, the fancy or imagination, which is so common at various stages of our daily life. The Sutra which describes it says, Following from knowledge through words, that means things which are conceptual, but empty of a perceivable object, which means with no physical correspondent actually, is fancy or imagination if you prefer. Therefore, if this is conceptually described, like you read about something in a book, or somebody told you or something, there is no object for it, and therefore all we can do is imagine it. This has so many shades, and it's actually a very, very rich part of our mental activity. It actually does not mean that there is no object, because we can imagine something which exists, but that the object mentioned in the statement is a relatively non-existent, like it is not momentary in front of me, and then I am closing my eyes, or not, even with the eyes open, I can do it, and I imagine it. Right knowledge, wrong knowledge, and imagination are equally processes of consciousness, but they differ insofar as right knowledge has a true object, the wrong knowledge has a false object, it actually is addressing wrong, whereas imagination or vikalpa has no perceivable object at all. This difference should be carefully understood, because all three, they address to some degree of reality. Here, the yogic commentators involve, for example, as, as effect of imagination, not only imagining words, but, for example, words without object, which also refers to demagogical expressions, like used in politics, in New Age books and materials, or sometimes used in philosophical argumentation. Like, for example, you speak some big words. This actually means opening to receive and to give. And and then after they finish speaking, there is nothing left in you. It's just some big words. There are whole books today written out of big words. Those big words sound excellent, but in practice nothing is happening. And therefore, those are based on a sort of demagogy, on a sort of hysteria, because they use some large words, but without correspondence, exactly like the political demagogy, where somebody is praising, I don't know, the dream of democracy or whatever, and in fact nothing is happening, the things are just going the way they have always been going. If you want, it is the philosophical argumentation. Somebody can say, and uh, let's take it in an Indian concept, somebody can say, consciousness is the manifestation of Purusha. This is, in, is, this is exactly like ba- big words. What does it mean that consciousness is the manifestation of Purusha? These all of them are words which lead to an imaginary conclusion because Purusha, is something indescribable. Consciousness is a concept which is entirely vague because it is subjective and it cannot be described by any objective word. And to say that consciousness is a manifestation of Purusha is just a big word. It's just a very resounding word and sentence, but which is actually for the yogis, psychologically located at the level of the imagination, which simply says, wait a second, But this is a sentence which is inspiring me a lot. Right, which simply means the imagination can also be painful or not painful. Some of this imagination is pure illusion and some of this imagination is a constructive imagination which can be used as steps in our development. That's why I wrote here as the idea that this fancy or imagination as described by Patanjali is also 50-50. Sometimes it is a great problem for spiritual practitioners because people imagine. You hear something and you immediately jump to a conclusion and it's all in your imagination. Ah, this means that this and that, and then it's exactly like a monster in your mind. You imagine something and it's like something which disturbs your peace, gives you all kind of disturbing emotions. One is actually unable to experience what is what is happening. How often haven't you seen people who heard something halfway, then they build up the other half through their own imagination. It was false. This false image was like a dragon torturing them in the mind and they kept on torturing themselves with it. And because of this, they are even unable to seek more and to find out what the real truth is. And therefore, they remained at this level. So imagination... You know that imagination is at the level of and This is one of the main causes of suffering of mankind. This particular modification of mind. That people live in imagination. People live in political demagogy. People live in new age dreams. People live in philosophies. People live in this. Everybody is selling dreams, even the... Hollywood and whatever and the Bollywood is selling dreams and people easily take these dreams halfway through or whatever and because of this there results a world of dreams which most often leads to very unfortunate consequences. And therefore one is unable to even address the right knowledge. Again, even the right knowledge can have negative conclusions sometimes but it is a little more sattvic, it is a little bit more grounded in reality, and this is the part of imagination which comes from Svadhisthana. Uh, also, much of this state of imagination manifests in the dream state. For the yogis, the dream state when you dream is like the daydream when you imagine. Daydreaming or fancying and dreaming in your sleep have more or less the same quality. The same is happening in other similar states. The Tibetan yogis They define the six states of bardo, out of which one is the bardo of dreaming, but the other one is the bardo of meditation, which means when you meditate, very often you are subjected to imagination, you imagine, you fancy. Therefore there is imagination in meditation, in sleeping with dreams, in daily life, in daydreaming. The great Vivekananda of India used to put this even as a kind of test in his commentary to Yoga Sutra, he says this is a sound a sign, this story, our relationship with the imagination, is a sign that shows the true power of the mind. If some news that come to you can throw your mind into vritis, like somebody tells you uh, Walter has said that you are idiot, and then all day long you just think about what John told you that Walter said about you and you are thrown into Vritis because of this then, and you have no restraint, that you cannot stop that or control it, then Vivekananda says, your mind is weak. That is a sign of a weak mind. A strong mind has restraint. Somebody tells you something and you don't move at all. It's like somebody talked to a rock. There is so simply no reaction. Vivekananda says, that is a strong mind. The other one is a weak mind. Of course, To analyze the positive part of it, sometimes uh, this imagination is a powerful instrument, like in visualization, self-suggestion, and the others. This is the Ajna Chakra part of the fancy. The Ajna Chakra part, which is indeed the one coming from a powerful mind, where there is restraint. I don't think what my mind, what my vrittis throw me to think. I think what I want. I want to see myself healthy, I want to see myself powerful, I want to see myself happy, I want to see myself spiritually realized, I want to see myself like this and like that, then my mind has restrained, because my mind always goes into the soap opera and says, yes, but Walter said you are stupid. Shut up. I am healthy, I am enlightened, I am this... I have restrained, a powerful mind moves to Ajna from Svadhisthana and it basically creates a positive imagination. This positive imagination is a great power. This is more the tantric part of it. In Yoga Sutra even, it is not mentioned so much, the commentators don't mention this part so much. And uh, this is because the tendency is uh, generally Vedantic And the Vedantic tendency, as well as some typical or old-fashioned Buddhist tendencies, are to eliminate everything. Why should you care about uh, some thought in the mind? It's a vritti, it's a modification of the mind. It disturbs the peace of your pure crystal, which is Purusha, the spirit, and therefore uh, you shouldn't have any of those. But the Tantric tradition believes in the fact that Prakriti is part of the game and therefore that you wish to modify this Prakriti all the time. And therefore, how do you modify this Prakriti? By simply putting the mind to work. You are not just cancelling the mind, but you are choosing the good part of it and you are saying, hey, the mind is not so bad after all, sometimes, It can actually be used for amazing things. With your mind you can walk on fire. With your mind you can heal yourself. With your mind you can do this. Then why shouldn't you take the beautiful part of it and put it to some use? And here is, of course, the eternal dialogue between the Vedantin culture which rejects manifestation and the Tantric understanding which embraces manifestation and wants to do something about it. And therefore, yes the fancy, the imagination, can be very useful as in all those processes which I said and so many others. Therefore we can say that imagining certain objects or certain qualities can be very helpful at steps in development, although they have to be discarded ultimately. You can imagine I am very powerful and you can actually build a very powerful nature, but when you reach the Self, the Self is neither powerful nor weak. The ultimate nature is not having the attribute of powerful or weak. Therefore, you have to give up this illusion that I am powerful. Even being powerful is an illusion, which until you reach there, it served you. And then when you have to make the last step, is of no relevance anymore, and then you can throw it. But it's exactly like a boat. Why should you cross the ocean with a bad boat, when you can cross the ocean in a good boat? And which is not torturing you. You are having a bad boat, you always have to bucket, take buckets of water out of it because your boat is just leaking with water. Or you can have a wonderful boat with an engine which crosses by itself and you are just whistling and admiring the landscape. There are two different ways of crossing the ocean of life and Tantra takes account of this and says it's not indifferent. It actually matters. And that is why, yes... Even the imagination is sometimes leading to illusion, delusion, pain, because it is the way I have described. It's like a monster that eats our peace of mind. And sometimes if I can control it, then my imagination becomes a powerful ally because I imagine what I want to imagine. And that's the end of it. <clears throat> the fourth modification of the mind analyzed by Patanjali is what was being called here, the sleep. The Sanskrit word used for it is nidra. And if you remember, nidra is a kind of unusual way for sleep because it is referring mostly to the yogic sleep. It's yoga, nidra, nidra, yoga. Normally sleep is used by the words svapna, sushupti and other few words which are used in Sanskrit. Nidra is a bit of a peculiar word which shows us clearly that we are looking here at it from the standpoint of yoga. The sutra itself says, sleep is that vriti, is the vriti which has a support, the cognition of the absence. It's a pretty subtle sutra because for most people, uh, first of all, we have to understand this does not refer to the sleep with dreams because dream was included In the other sutra with imagination. Therefore, this refers to the deep sleep without dreams, to this sleep which is like a blacking out, like a swoon. Therefore, this sleep can be and has been considered by somebody as a non-state. Some people say, wait a second, is sleep a state of mind? Sleep is rather like a not a state of mind, is a non-state. However, Patanjali and others, the commentators, they um, say... That since you can remember sleep, and since you can think of sleep, like you can say, wow, I had such a deep sleep with no dreams, therefore, actually, it is a state of mind, but it is a state of mind which refers to a no content. It is a state of mind which reflects the void, which reflects the zero. That is also a peculiar state then. Therefore, the very reason of our remembering the sleep is that during the sleep there was a certain class of waves in the mind. So sleep is not a no state, but it is a state of no contents. It sounds a little bit like splitting the hair, but actually it's an important conclusion in working some things for the lucid dreaming and others. As compared with the first three vrittis mentioned previously, the right knowledge, the wrong knowledge and the imagination or fancy, This one is characterized by no awareness, consciousness or unconsciousness. We can, for example, see a rose inside our mind, either in form of a vision, a dream or an ideal. The content of the mind in all these case states is called pratyaya. When the very idea of an object, the very contents of the mind is removed through a certain process, such as that of sleep without dreams, the mind becomes without support or supports upon the concept of absence. Actually, there is a, a concept. That concept is that of no, nothing, therefore actually there is a vikalpa in uh, a vritti there, therefore sleep is a vritti in which the content of the mind is the absence, the absence of all contents, that in itself is a content, is not nothing. And uh, one of the great commentators, Vyasa, one of the great commentators of Yoga Sutra, actually insists that because of this, because this has a very special significance when meditating on the states of void in yoga, actually sleep, that sleep already gives a glimpse of the seer, but only indistinctly, because through the sleep then one is reaching almost at the perception of the void, only that at the same time one is unconscious and cannot remember, and that is why sleep is a very special way of entering into states of higher consciousness, which makes Nidra Yoga a very peculiar path in this way. Therefore, sleep, remember, because of this peculiar thing, because it addresses to one particular vritti, the vritti of the absence, it is actually like the one which contains the germs of the void itself. And finally, the last which we are commenting tonight, and with which Patanjali finishes the analysis of the contents of the mind, is saying, not letting the experience objects escape from the mind, and the sentence is very complicated, he uses Sanskrit words with double meaning, and it can be translated, and neither adding to them more than has been perceived, so neither more nor less, not losing anything from the mind, nor adding anything to it, is called, is memory, he says. And therefore he defines the fifth of the vrittis, the fifth of the modifications of the mind, memory, which means keeping something in the mind without modification. Memory is the fifth vritti of the mind, is of two kinds, conscious memory and subconscious memory. It is also that we can remember physical objects or we can remember imaginations that we had, so we can remember things which are subtle. Thus we can summarize the five vrittis mentioned by Patanjali in the following manner. The first vritti involves right knowledge, the second wrong knowledge, the third imaginary knowledge, the fourth no knowledge or knowledge of the absence, and the last one past knowledge. This covers the entire field of our consciousness. While defining yoga, Patanjali already said that the essence of yoga is contained in blocking or stopping all these vrittis. He describes the means which are used for this purpose in the next sutras. So, basically here there ends a certain conceptual part, and that's why I will stop the presentation here, because from here Patanjali goes to the next subject. Uh, it has also been said, and the commentators have said, just ease your identification, what elements are related with each of the five states of mind. Remember... There are defined five states of mind. The mind can be in stupor, like stupefied dull. The mind can be restless. The mind can be dispersed. The mind can be focused. And the mind can be finally arrested or completely stopped. To those correspond the five modifications of the mind. The stupor is related to sleep, obviously. The restlessness is related traditionally with wrong knowledge. The dispersed attention is related to fancy or imagination. The focused attention is related to memory. And finally, the arrested mind is related to the right knowledge. And in this way, you have five states of mind, five modifications of the mind, which are related to the five elements in a way which is to be uh, followed up later in the analysis. Let's stop a little bit here and say what Patanjali has said until now. He said yoga is when you stop the mind, when you stop the mind, Sutra 3, when you stop the mind, the spirit in its its pure form, Purusha, if, if there is agitation of the mind, the spirit is not in its pure form, and it starts identifying with those various modifications. And then he simply said, he started defining what those dispersion things are. There are five modifications of the mind which generate positive or not positive effects. Those five are right knowledge, wrong knowledge, imagination, uh, memory, and uh, sleep. And finally, he described what each one of them consists of. Now, in the next sutra, as you are going to see, he tells us then how to stop them, how to deal with them, this being the five modifications of the mind, what needs to be done Because he never forgets the purpose. The purpose is that yoga is the stopping of the modifications of the mind, which means a totally peaceful meditation. And when this is fulfilled, then automatically the spirit abides in its pure form. As you are going to see, uh, Patanjali generally follows a very logical order. That's one thing which defines him. He takes things by subject and analyzes them until he finishes them. And he never loses the thread of the presentation. He always may may divagate, present something, and then he comes back to the main thread. And he continues with the presentation of the root subject. We are going to stop here with a little bit of meditation to deepen this. I will perform together with you a few minutes of meditation, again on Ajna Chakra, to deepen uh, these things. Next time we are going to continue, actually, uh, let's see if it is on Friday. I think on Friday we have the yoga in daily life. But anyhow, next time when we meet about Yoga Sutra, we uh, will continue with some very, very important and beautiful sutras about the practice of yoga. And slowly, slowly we'll define that subject. Please now prepare for a few minutes of meditation. We meditate again on Ajna Chakra.